In your Bibles this morning, congregation, we would invite you to turn to Ephesians 1. We'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 10, and then focusing our attention this morning, especially on verses 7 through 10. So Ephesians 1, we'll begin reading at verse 1, and we remind ourselves as we find this selection on page 1342 in our pew Bibles that here we have the very Word of God itself. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And thus far our reading uh, from the word of God this morning. Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have just sung a most remarkable statement of truth, a remarkable statement of Christian conviction. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. I want to ask you this morning, as you sung those words, did you sing them with personal conviction? You know, there is much that we do not know. And there is much that I do not know. There is much that we and I do not know concerning the way that God unfolds His providence, the way that God brings certain events to pass within life, within our own personal lives, within our congregational life. You might even say there's much that we do not know nor understand in regards to the life of this world. But this I know, That his wounds, that is, the wounds of the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, has paid my ransom. And I would submit to you, congregation, this morning, that from the perspective of a deathbed, from the perspective of a cemetery, from the perspective of mortal remains being committed into the earth. That is all. That is all that we need to know. That His wounds has paid for my ransom. And that's why the Apostle Paul begins with the emphasis that he begins with in Ephesians 1. It's all about Him, not the Apostle Paul. 
It's all about Him, the triune God, and especially the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him we have redemption. I want to briefly, with the time allotted us this morning, to consider uh, this spiritual truth and reality underneath the theme of a doxology to God for the spiritual blessing of redemption. Noticing, first of all, the description of the spiritual blessing of redemption, and then secondly, the manner of the spiritual blessing of redemption, and then thirdly, the revelation of the spiritual blessing of redemption. So, Paul continues his song of praise, his doxology, to God, to whom all praise ought to always be directed. So a doxology to God for the spiritual blessing of redemption, the description, the manner, and the revelation of the spiritual blessing of redemption. The spiritual blessings of redemption or of salvation, notice that they are a present reality. The Apostle Paul has begun unfolding the doctrines of grace to the Ephesians by reaching, as it were, through his inspired pen all the way back before time into eternity itself. And there he has begun to unfold for us something of the remarkable mystery of God's grace in election. But now the pen of the Apostle Paul moves from that perspective of eternity and it enters into time. And he says, we have. We have this redemption. Uh, But that brings us to consider what exactly is this redemption? Uh, That's a a term that is tossed about within the church and even within broader culture uh, quite loosely and oftentimes in an undefined manner. But I want to briefly this morning look very carefully at this word and try to answer the question, what exactly is this redemption that we have? The word redemption refers to a liberation or a being set free from captivity or a being loosed from bondage. It was often used in connection uh, to the redemption of someone who would have been uh, in servitude or perhaps even in slavery. And if that person in the Roman culture and in the Roman times had the opportunity to purchase their own freedom, or perhaps if someone else would come and purchase their freedom, then they would be redeemed and they would be set free from that bondage. They would be liberated. And the Apostle Paul uses this word to speak of a liberation, a liberation that comes by way of the propitiating death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, look at it very carefully again. In Him we have redemption. And we need to specify this to be faithful to our text, but also to correct our culture because many people want to speak about redemption very broadly and lose sight of the central focus of Jesus Christ in the obtaining of our redemption. Notice it's in Him, and it is only in Him that we have redemption. There's no other avenue, no other work, no other person by which we can obtain redemption other than Jesus Christ and His substitutionary, vicarious, atoning sacrifice 
And that's why the hymn that is rich also with biblical truth and theology says, In my place condemned he stood. Now these words are not just antiquated words of a former day. These are the rich lifeblood of the Christian faith. Words such as substitutionary atonement. In my place he was condemned. By his wounds... I have been ransomed. And I certainly hope that your heart beats with joy, but also with a humble amazement when you think upon this truth. In Him, we have redemption. Redemption, you'll notice, is also described as forgiveness. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, on one hand, you could say that redemption is a broader concept than just the forgiveness of sins, but at the very heart and center of redemption is the forgiveness of sins. So you can think of redemption broader than forgiveness, but you cannot think of redemption apart from the forgiveness of sins. In him we have the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness, as this is used by the Apostle Paul, and we want to be clear on this also, describes an action of God. You hear much about people believing that they have to forgive themselves, and I understand that there is a a sense in which we need to embrace the reality of the forgiveness that God gives us. But congregation, we have sinned first and foremost in our thoughts, words, and actions against God. And it is the divine action of God to forgive. And the way in which God forgives is based upon the merit of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ by a transfer of guilt. That the guilt of my sins is placed upon the substitutionary shoulders of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the basis of that transaction that takes place in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is perfectly just and yet also infinitely gracious. And He, on the basis of that sacrifice, forgives or lifts the guilt away, carries the guilt away making one's sins to be of no legal account, thereby bringing about the restored relationship of peace. I don't know what exactly transpired in your week. I don't even know what exactly transpired in your morning. I don't know what fears and doubts, anxieties, troubles you may have in your soul. And I don't know what the next week has in store for us personally or as a congregation. But this I know. His wounds have paid for the sins of all of those who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith. And sometimes perhaps we just need to walk through life repeating to ourselves In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. 
But I want to look a little bit more closely in our second point at the manner of the spiritual blessing. How are sinners redeemed and forgiven? Uh, And you might say that there are are layers within our text. And with each phrase, the Apostle Paul takes us a bit deeper into the understanding of this remarkable spiritual mystery of redemption. And so you notice uh, that there is this phrase in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. And I want to just briefly reflect back, and this will come up also in our form for self-examination, and then next week, Sunday morning, Lord willing, as the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is administered, the focus, and we've said this before from this pulpit, but we don't make apologies for our repetition when we speak about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, because this, this truth, this doctrine is being denied, distorted, even among some so-called reformed denominations, or at least questioned, is the blood, the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ necessary for the forgiveness of sins? And some, they mock and they ridicule, and they would speak about us as being barbaric theologians for emphasizing the necessity of the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if they want to accuse us of being barbaric theologians, they must also lay the same charge to the feet of the Apostle Paul. And I, for one, am comfortable with being associated with the Apostle Paul in emphasizing also by way of repetition uh, the necessity of the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, because that is our only hope for time and for eternity. What am I going to do with my sin? What are you going to do with your sin? Deny it? Minimize it? Excuse it? That will not profit us anything. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How? Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And you can think also of a text such as 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. And notice here again this beautiful word, knowing, knowing, Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Uh, The vast amounts of gold uh, that the nations have in their possession could not even begin to redeem my soul. If I had all of the wealth of all of the banks in the entire world, and if I were to take all of that monetary wealth and put it before the almighty throne of God's justice, that could not even begin to cover for one of my sins. But Peter says, no, we have not been redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ. There is redemption. And that redemption is accomplished and gained and merited and earned by the precious blood of Christ. By the shed blood. Even as that was unfolded all throughout the Old Testament dispensation with types and symbols. As the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, and he did so with blood, and he went forward to the Ark of the Covenant in a most solemn occasion on the Day of Atonement, 
and that place which symbolized God dwelling with His people. And He went in and He sprinkled blood on the mercy seat for a covering so that when God in His justice and in His holiness would look down upon the Ark of the Covenant in which there was contained the tablets of stone, including the Ten Commandments, He would not see, so to speak, those tablets of stone, but He would see the covering of blood. And so also, uh, on the Passover, when the angel of death moved throughout the land of Egypt, as he went from house to house executing justice, the angel of death would have stopped at the household, at the doorpost of the faithful child of Israel, and would have looked and had seen the blood there on the doorpost, and then he would have passed over. So also God looks upon the Christian, looks upon you and upon me, And in His judicial righteousness, He doesn't see our sin, but He sees the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And on that basis, and on that account, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And you see, congregation, that is the only way to face the certain prospect of our own personal deathbed. That is the only way to stand in a cemetery surrounded by tombstones knowing one day, unless the Lord returns first, one day my mortal remains also will be committed into the ground. But this I know. His wounds have paid for my ransom. So there can be the facing of the deathbed. There can be the facing of the Jordan River. There can be the facing of a cemetery because of redemption through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And underneath, you might say, or behind the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and here's what I mean by by layers within this text. It's as if the Apostle Paul is excavating, digging deeper and deeper and deeper to the redeeming work of our God. And so you notice in verse 7, after referring to the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Grace, and I hope this is crystal clear in our minds and in our hearts, grace is the undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor of God. But it's also a powerful action of God. Grace is the attitude of God towards His people, but it's also an action that God takes. Grace is this undeserved, unmerited intervention, you might say, of God into our plight. Uh, And verse 7 emphasizes the full measure of this grace with the phrase of, according to the riches of His grace. And that word riches means a, a wealth a superabundance of something, an overflowing of something. And here again, I want to challenge our own understanding of God's very character and God's very nature. And we emphasize that we must be biblically balanced within our understanding of who God is. And on the one hand, of course, we emphasize, rightfully so, in accordance with truth of Scripture, we emphasize the justice of God, the righteousness of God. 
But let us also make sure that we emphasize the superabundance of God's grace, of His tender mercies, of His loving kindness. And that's why we chose to, to read from our text assuring us of pardon uh, from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who does these things for you, including the forgiveness of your iniquities, the redeeming of your life from destruction. Uh, but why does He do those things? Because of what we read in verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious. And so in the mind of our soul, when we think of our Lord, especially when we think of the action of redemption, we must soon... We must soon be caught up with the wonder of His overwhelming grace. And our God is infinite in all of His perfections, but He is infinite also in His grace towards His people. And you can think of the Apostle John uh, as he writes his account of the gospel and as he opens it up and he speaks of grace upon grace, waves of grace. And the word here in our text in verse 8, it has this idea, to be more than enough, to flow over, to be abundant. You know, boys and girls, I don't know what things are like in your home, but one of the, the treats uh, when our kids were, especially when they were even younger, one of the treats that we would sometimes have on Sunday mornings was, was chocolate milk. And, and usually the chocolate milk was rationed quite closely. You, know, you, could, you could have maybe a half a glass of chocolate milk. But, but then sometimes, you know, if there was a bunch of chocolate milk in the gallon that still needed to be drank up, you could have a full glass, maybe even, maybe even two glasses. Now, it's a silly little illustration, but there's no limit to God's grace. It's not like he says, a half a cup of grace, and that's it for this week. It's not as if he says, one cup of grace, that's all you get. It's not even as he says, two or three cups of grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And it is my hope and my prayer that that comforts your soul this morning. A superabundance, an overflowing fountain of grace. Well, I want to briefly also consider the revelation and our third point of the spiritual blessing of redemption. And here we seek to do justice to a certain extent of the parameters of our text by looking in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of His will. This idea of revelation, these, these spiritual truths of God's superabundance of grace, of the reality of the forgiveness of sins, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ as a substitutionary Savior, we would not know of these things unless God made them known to us through His Word. And again, I don't want to be overly morbid, but when you think of lying upon a deathbed, 
getting ready to say goodbye to time and entering into eternity. How do you know your sins are forgiven? How do you know that God is gracious? How do you know? Well, the answer is, verse 9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. I remember, and again, if, if I ever use these illustrations too often, please call me out on it. I remember when the doctor came to me and said, you have a brain tumor. And suddenly eternity became much, much more of a pressing reality. And I thought, how will I meet God? And I thought, the only way to meet God is to meet Him with His own word. to stand in his presence and say, Lord, you have spoken. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to meet God. With his word. And it's part of God's grace that he has made known to us the revelation of his will. Hypothetically speaking, God could have left us in the dark about these spiritual realities. But he didn't and he doesn't because of his grace. He wants the Christian to know that we have redemption. He wants the Christian to have assurance of faith. And we understand that the sense of the assurance of faith can wax and wane with the exercise of faith. But we also want to speak very clearly against this pocket idea within certain segments of the church and where there is no assurance of faith and say that that is not what our Father wants. A loving Father wants His children to know that they are His children, and that all things are well. And now as we draw to a conclusion, I have the solemn obligation as a gospel minister to proclaim to each and every one who hears these words that there is redemption. But that redemption is only in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, what is your hope for time and for eternity? And if it's not the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I earnestly call for you to repent and to believe and to find refuge in a crucified Lord and Savior while it is still day. But to you, Christian, who finds your only comfort, your only hope, your only sense of security and the reality of a crucified Savior, then it is my wonderful opportunity to testify to you this morning, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.
We also have the opportunity to read from the Lord's Supper preparatory form, and I want to do that before we have our prayer of application, because you'll notice that this form weaves the truths that we've been attempting to speak about this morning. So if you take your forms and prayers booklet and turn to page 37, we have there the celebration of the Lord's Supper form one, and we'll read the institution of the supper and then the call to self-examination. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary to examine ourselves fully and further to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of three parts. First, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that he, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine their heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own, indeed, so completely as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before his face, and whether they with full sincerity strive to lay aside all enmity hatred and envy, and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. All those then who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. According to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature, those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition, all those who despise God, His Word, and His holy sacraments, all blasphemers, those who seek to raise discord, factions, and dissension in the church or in the state, all perjurers, 
all who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives. All those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper, so that they feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts, as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. We do not come to this supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness, but on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lust of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Now let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that speaks clearly to us, revealing our condition uh, of being sinners. But we thank you also that that same word reveals so clearly uh, the work of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we have heard your word, and as we now engage in the practice of a spiritual self-examination, and may we see both of those truths May we know that we are the chief of sinners, but may we also know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so we ask that we might be humbled but also comforted by the sound of the gospel. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.